If I'm being honest, I am not even sure how to open up this week's episode. Back in the fall, my husband and I had the opportunity to screen a documentary called Letter from Musangia. And I'm going to get into the details of the documentary and we'll be talking about it throughout this episode. But after I saw that documentary, it affected me in ways I can't even begin to explain. I knew that I wanted to have the producer of that documentary on this episode, and so I reached out to him, and I asked him to come on the show, and he obliged. And today's episode is tough. It is engaging, it's challenging, it's emotional, it's raw, but my prayer is that it will impact you. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an amazing person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. My guest this week that I was talking about is Leon Lee, the founder of Flying Cloud Productions, a production studio creating socially conscious and entertaining film, television, and digital media. He's also the producer of Letter from Messengia, a recently released documentary that, again, I had the opportunity of viewing back in the fall, and I was completely wrecked by it. So without further ado, we're going to dive right into my conversation with Leon. Hey, Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to sit and chat with me. And honestly, um, so we're going to get into uh, some of your documentaries um, and the one in particular that I saw, A Letter from Masangia. Um, My husband and I actually were able to view a screening of it um, back in September. And after seeing that documentary, what an incredible incredible documentary it is. Um, I had to know more about you. Um, And so I went on a little bit of an internet search and began to just read more about you and your life and your other works. And um, I want I I so badly want to see some of the other documentaries that you've made. But um, I knew after that, I said, I want to have a conversation with uh, Mr. Lee. So thank you so much. It's truly an honor to have you on the show. And I know that um, people are really going to be uh, blessed and encouraged and challenged by our conversation today and hearing your story. Um, but so to what to just kick off, I am going to have you do what all my guests do, and that's give us the Leon 101. So tell us your story, um, you know, where you grew up, how you got to where you are today, and how you got into documentary filmmaking. Absolutely. I was born in uh, northeastern China. Um, I um, was actually initially in uh, in business and uh, psychology. That's what I studied in college. Um, in 2006, I immigrated to Canada after got, uh, getting married. And uh, after I arrived in Canada, uh, I actually heard about the allegations of uh, forced organ harvesting in China. Mm. And the hospital in question was not too far away from my hometown. Oh, wow. So my initial reaction is one of complete disbelief. I, I knew that uh, China had been using organs from death row inmates, but uh, this particular allegation was that uh, the government of China had been harvesting organs from prisoners of conscience, oh, wow. in particular Falun Gong practitioners. Uyghurs, Tibetans, house church members, and political dissidents. Mm. 
mm-hmm. in the hundreds of thousands. So this is something I just couldn't believe. Yeah. If, now, if, But, can you uh, just real, real briefly, and I know this is a very, very complex and, and deep subject, um, for, for people that honestly that may be listening and maybe were in a similar situation that you were in 2006, and they don't know much about this, can you just kind of give us a brief o- overview of this? Because this obviously has a big part that is a big part of your story and how you got into into filmmaking um it, for people that just aren't familiar exactly with what organ harvesting is and what's going on in china yes um there has been allegations that uh, uh the chinese government uh have been harvesting liver kidney cornea skin mm. from uh prisoners of conscience wow uh they are you know most likely Uh, being detained for their for their thought or their political uh, advocacy, and of course, they would die in the process of, mm. you know, getting their organs harvested. Mm. And uh, the the organs are mostly tra- um, given to foreign transplant tourists who uh, come to China and stay for a couple of weeks, get a new organ, and uh, go back. And uh, this particular allegation also. Uh, mentioned the, the possible number of victims uh, in in the hundreds of thousands wow. nationwide. Wow! So that was something I just couldn't believe. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I I couldn't let go. I kept asking myself, "What if it's true?" Um, and um, it just happened that the two pioneers in this investigation were both Canadians, David Maitis and David Kilgore. Um, so being in Canada, I had the opportunity to get in touch with them and follow their investigation. Very quickly, I realized that this is probably happening, and it, and it was still happening. Mm. So I thought it, maybe it's a good idea to make a film. Uh, I, I I never went to film school, but being um, such. A, <laughs> A fan of films since I was young. Yeah, I watched many, many films, and I I knew that you know perhaps the mainstream media uh, is the, the fastest and most effective way to get the message out, but they are not necessarily on our side. So may, maybe making a film is the second best way to have a have a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I did. I uh, essentially collected uh, textbooks from the leading film schools. I believe it was close to 30 books. Wow! I read all of them in in uh, uh, four months, wow. and I thought uh, maybe I was ready to to make a film. Uh, and that that took me eight years to complete uh, my first documentary uh, titled "Human Harvest." Wow! Uh, it took so long, mainly because it was very difficult to find patients. Who had been to China for uh, organ transplantation mm. and were willing to testify um, on camera. Yeah. So we we did that. That's what started my filmmaking career. And uh, as you mentioned, this is also uh, why so many people afterwards came to me with their stories, and which prompted me to keep making films. Yeah. And so you, you you basically were yourself taught, which is incredible and really inspiring. And it's one of those situations where I think that it just inspires so many people of to follow a calling, follow 
a dream that they have and don't let anything get in the way um, because even if you're not able to go to a formal school or you're not able to do whatever, you can go to a library and you can get some books or you can go on Amazon and buy some books. You can learn. Um, And so that's just really incredible that you were able to do that. Um, When you set out to create that first documentary, um, Human Harvest, Where did you even start? Because I know you you mentioned that it was really difficult to find patients, which I can only imagine how difficult that was. Where did you even think to begin your journey? Thankfully, um, the two Davids uh, were very, very helpful because they had extensive contacts in their investigation. Mm -hmm. I was able to have a jump start in in a sense. Um, But uh, to be able to find patients was really, really the most difficult part. I I tried everything. I looked into uh, patient care groups where the the patients uh, who have gone through organ transplantation would meet uh, periodically to discuss their um, cases, sort of a support group. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to different groups and trying to gain their trust and then uh, tell them why I'm doing this. Um, Sometimes I would make some progress, but someone would agree to, to an interview but after even lighting was set up and the camera was about to roll, they got cold feet and they just canceled the interview wow. right there. Wow. Uh, sometimes uh, it, it possibly they were influenced by uh, people from China. Yeah. Uh, so they, they decided not to do it. Mm. Mm. Uh, but in the end, I had to go to Taiwan to find three cases. Um, they were very brave patients who after uh, their surgeries, realized the possible sources of their organs. So they really wanted to help me to to, to do this. Mm. Um, And um, I was able to gather their interviews in uh, 2012 and 2013. That's why by 2014, I was able to finish the film. Wow. So you created that first film, which took you about eight years to complete. At what point did you start Flying Cloud Productions. Um, and for those that are listening, obviously, Leon, you are the uh, founder of Flying Cloud Productions, which is a production company that is focused on creating socially conscious and entertaining you know, film, tele- television, digital media. At what point did you decide to start this entire production company? Or did you think that first documentary was just kind of going to be your one and done? Or did you realize that, that there was something more there? Uh, the company was founded in 2012 when I um, had gathered you know, almost everything I needed to complete the first film. And during the years, as I was trying to approach people and get their uh, information, uh, uh, more and more people who came out of China with incredible stories mm. uh, learned about my project and came to me to tell me their stories. Yeah, uh, It was that, at that point I realized um, there are so many amazing stories that nobody is, is telling. Mm. The world needs to know their stories. History needs to remember their stories. Yeah. So the least I can do is to help them to tell their stories. That's why um, I founded the production company, hoping that uh, I can uh, do more films in, uh, in, in this field. And that's, that's what I did. Now, obviously, creating a film, an initial film like this, that is covering something that is, you know, 
it's a dark, it's a very dark, it's a very secretive, it's a very risky topic to to discuss and to, to cover. Throughout that time that you were making this documentary, at any point did you feel unsafe making it? Did you what what kinds of challenges did you run into as you were doing the research? Um, because I can only imagine that making this film also came at a great risk and a great cost to you. Uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, well, there were all kinds of interference. Um, many of them I, I, I couldn't even remember. But uh, my, my biggest impression was that Whatever challenges I faced, I kept thinking about either the victims or the subjects in my films, uh, what they have gone through, mm. uh, and really the the any possible risks I was facing uh, is nothing in comparison to what they were facing. Um, so that's why I was able to um, complete it. The real interference came after the film was released, actually. Mm. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a wide distribution. It was broadcast in uh, dozens of countries worldwide. Mm. Um, it, it, it won the Peabody Award. So, um, and, and the combined efforts, you know, the film and many organizations, Hugh Davis, Ethan Gutman, and many other people, we were able to make some uh, real impact. Uh, several countries passed uh, legislations their citizens from going to China for, for organ transplantation. Wow. Uh, and more and more uh, governments and, and congresses, parliaments around the world are raising this issue. Uh, it is at, at that point, uh, I, I realized that probably I could no longer return to China safely. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So any, I'm assuming you have to, not been since that since you haven't been in a long time i'm assuming that's correct <laughs> yes the the state media has officially labeled me as a traitor wow and as as a chinese i i knew what that me- meant yeah so it's not a good idea to, to go back now wow now, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Letter from Masanjia. Um, this is the documentary that I mentioned, obviously, for the listeners at the early, at the beginning of the show um, that both my husband and I were able to view a screening of. And it is one of the most impactful and powerful documentaries I've seen in a long time. The production is absolutely incredible. And so I just want to initially give uh, kudos to you uh, for, for the, the work that you have done and just say what a job well done because it's, it's truly incredible. I actually, I read something recently and I want to, can you confirm or deny that your documentary is eligible for an Oscar? Is that correct? Yes, wow. we we are in in the run for uh, Oscar Best Documentary Feature this year, but I have to say there are 166 films in the run, and many of them I've seen in the festival circuit. They are wonderful, wonderful films. So just to be on the list is already a huge honor. Yeah, absolutely. So that's congratulations for that because that's that's just incredible. Um, and so for um, I will say this as a 
a precursor or <laughs> just as a warning to the listeners, um, I have a few questions that will be spoilers. So if you have not seen the documentary um, or if you don't want to hear spoilers, you can press, press pause on this podcast right now. Go watch it and then come back and finish after um, to hear some of the questions that I have. Because, um, But if you also are okay with hearing spoilers, you can obviously keep listening. Um, and so now for those also that want to view the documentary, Documentary. Um, it's available for digital viewing now. It's on iTunes, Amazon. Uh, where else is it available to view now? Uh, lots of platforms on Google Play, oh, right. uh, Vimeo. Uh, even you can get it at, at Walmart, Redbox. Oh, wonderful. It's, it's everywhere. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. So if you want to view it, you can obviously very easily go and get it online or even like Walmart Redbox. That's awesome. Um, and you can find out more about it also at letterfrommasangia.com. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Um, and I will obviously have the links and that information in the show notes for the listeners. Um, so to dive in, this documentary just has, first of all, an incredible premise. So uh, just to give the listeners kind of a 36,000-foot view initially, um, in 2000 and was it 2002? 12 that uh, there's a woman in Oregon, Julie Keith, um, had purchased some a Halloween decoration from Kmart. She opens up the Halloween decoration to find a letter attached to the back of it. And it was a letter written from now we know by a man by the name of Sun Yi. And he was a political or he was a prisoner in the Masanjia labor camp in China. And he was writing and high, he was making this product as part of his um, his punishment, part of the thing, the labor that he was supposed to do, and he hid this letter on the back of this product, and obviously it was shipped to the United States. Uh, he, all in all, he wrote twenty letters, but this is the only one that you know anyone has publicly come out and said that they found. So Julie Keith, she goes, I guess, to the local media, and then it blows up. Um, so, and he's obviously in this letter, he's detailing all of the. Uh, the torture that the the people in this labor camp have been through, um, just horrific, horrific things. Um, and so, Leon, you first heard about this through, was it through the news? Like, how did you get connected to Julie Keith? I heard it through the news. Yeah. And uh, it happened that I interviewed survivors from Masanja labor camp before. So I knew Masanjia was one of the most notorious labor camps in China. Mm. If someone was managed to uh, managed to uh, send a letter from that particular labor camp, I knew there had to be an amazing story behind it. Mm-hmm. So I immediately flew to Oregon. I met Julie Keith, and she was very helpful. I interviewed her multiple times over the years. Then the real challenge was to track down the uh, the letter writer Sun Yi. Yeah. Um, thanks to my previous films, I was able to develop an underground network of dissidents and journalists in China. Mm. So I put the word out. Three years later, one day somebody told me, "I think I got your guy." Wow. So we had initial. Skype uh, meeting. Part of it was in the film. Uh, it turned out that Sun Yi had also seen my previous work. Wow. So he was uh, very happy to be on board. 
And um, we had only one problem. As I mentioned, I couldn't go back to China safely. And Sun Yi mm. did not know how to use a camera. <laughs> so we too um, had to, you know, really pull this off mainly over Skype. Mm. I developed a little an online filmmaking course for him. Uh, wow. I sent him a list of gears that he needed to acquire. And uh, there we went. Wow. That's how we did it. Wow. I mean, first of all, it's incredible that, you know, they were able, I mean, and, and in the film, you know, you see Julie and Sun Yi meeting for the first time in person, which is just a really emotional moment. Um, but the fact that you were able to track him down is incredible. And and I kept thinking as well throughout seeing his story and seeing him talk about it and seeing the great risk that he went through to to cover this and to expose what he went through. Um, I just kept thinking of how brave he was, um, just incredibly brave. And so I, I was also amazed at just the way that you were able to do this all over Skype. Now, I have to ask, and this is uh, this may seem be a silly question, um, were you able to safely communicate over Skype? Because I know that the, the Chinese government very much limits um, – you know, internet usage and things like that. Like, how were you, you know, are they able to monitor conversations over Skype, things like that? Is that possible? Or was that not really a big concern? It was a, it was a huge concern. Mm -hmm. um, as we know, there is a firewall in China. Yeah. You couldn't access Google, YouTube, Facebook, or, or the majority of the Western media. Yeah. So uh, even getting contacts, we have to be very careful. Uh, Sun Yi would always use encryption software mm. and also a software to bypass the firewall to make sure that, uh, number one, uh, he is no longer blocked by the firewall, and number two, all uh, communication is encrypted. Wow. Uh, and even when um, he would uh, something and compress it, encrypt it, and send it over, to me online, I would view them and give them comment. We would plan the next day. Um, because of the encryption and everything, he obviously can't send the raw footage to me online. Yeah. So he would uh, put them in a hard drive, and um, and again, we can't use FedEx. Uh, we relied on our own network to uh, pass the hard drive to me. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it took up to two months for me to receive the drive. And only when I had the drive in my hand, he would tell me the password to unlock it. Oh, wow. And it was, it was encrypted in a way that I had only one chance to input the correct password. Otherwise, the drive will be locked forever. Oh, my goodness. So we had four drives all together. And fortunately, uh, I was able to unlock all of them <gasps> without incident. Oh, my goodness. That is, I can only imagine the fear. I mean, I... <laughs> can only imagine the just the nerves you felt as you were inputting that password um yeah so that that's a fascinating detail is that you weren't able to ship them because you were afraid that you know the drives would get intercepted in customs so you had i mean they were each physically delivered to you which is just incredible um you know did you have a backup plan or were you just kind of like this is the plan and it's just going to have to work there was really no backup plan. Yeah. Um, in, in the very beginning, I was also very concerned for Sun Yi's safety. Yeah. 
Uh, but what he said really con- convinced me. Basically, said, "Look, uh, helping you to film uh, doesn't bring additional risks to me. Mm. I do technical support. I print these underground flyers and and, and make DVDs. Any one of them, if I get caught, I face the same consequences." Yeah. So this is no more dangerous, but it's a lot more effective. Yeah. If I'm risking my life doing things, I rather do things that have, that are more effective. Yeah. So, but I, I knew very well that every day when he went out, it, it, it's very possible that he could, he could never return again. Mm. Mm. All it takes is for a police officer to stop him, check his ID, realizing that he is on the list. Yeah. He would be taken away. Yeah. So it was uh, nerve-wracking. Uh, if, if I received a message from him before I opened it, I was very concerned what I was about to see. Mm. If I don't, if I didn't hear from him for a while, I was even more nervous. Mm. So it was, um, oh, it was, <laughs> even looking back, it, I, I, I could still feel how nervous I, I was all the time. Wow. Now, for those that have not seen it, um, how, you know, and if I'm remembering correctly, Sun Yi actually, was it, did he go to Masanjia three times, I believe? He served three sentences there? Is it, am I remembering? No, he was only, he was only sentenced there once. Oh, just once. Okay, I could could have sworn. I I may, I'm misremembering. But he was, uh, he was arrested over a dozen times over Ah. the years. Yes, yes. Now, um, and this obviously, this affected everything in his life. And he was arrested purely for pra- for practicing his beliefs. He's a, um, a belie- He was a believer of Falun Gong. Um, and for those of us here on, in the West that are not familiar with Falun Gong, can you give a little bit about that and why the Chinese government is against it? Yes. Falun Gong was an ancient uh, spiritual discipline in China. It was made public in 1992, and uh, it has five sets of gentle exercises that looks a lot like yoga or tai chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, um, it's really very similar to yoga and tai chi in the sense that there is no membership, anybody in common practice, and it's completely free of charge. Mm-hmm. You can practice in a park, at your home. Uh, what differs it, uh, a little bit is that uh, the practitioners of Falun Gong strive to live their daily lives according to the core principles of Falun Gong, which is truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. Because mm. uh, it was so popular in China, by 1999, the government estimated that there were over 70 million to 100 million people practicing Falun Gong in China. Mm. It outnumbered the membership of the Communist Party which was about 60 million at the time. Mm. And the, the regime became quite uh, uh, nervous, although Falun Gong had no political agenda whatsoever. So they, the overnight change stands from supporting Falun Gong to launching a crackdown against it. Wow. Uh, since then, millions of people have been uh, detained, arrested, kicked out of school or the workplace or tortured. Uh, they were essentially forced to recant their beliefs or face uh, severe consequences. Mm. And uh, to date, I think thousands have been uh, uh, have been confirmed uh, uh, dead in in custody. That doesn't include uh, the hundreds and thousands of 
victims of organ harvesting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so he spent time in the Masanja labor camp um, and just endured brutal torture. Um, and just his experience was, um, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and I, I, I have to comment, too, on the way that you portrayed it. Um, and, and as he describes some of the things that he experienced, the way that you portray it is in kind of these animated drawings, um, which is just a really powerful way to depict his story since you can't show actual footage, obviously, from inside the labor camp. That was just a really po- a powerful way to illustrate it. Where did that yeah. Where did that idea come from, and how did you envision that um, when you were creating this film? That was an interesting story. Um, I was always thinking about the um, reenactments, knowing that if not done well, it could look very wrong mm-hmm. uh, and counterproductive. And uh, one day over a meeting with Sun Yi, he mentioned he had kept a sketchbook. Mm. Well, I, I had no high expectation, okay, a sketchbook. Until he showed me the artwork, I was completely blown away. Mm-hmm. It turned out Sun Yi had been an avid um, reader of traditional Chinese graph novels since he was a little boy. And he often practiced drawing the figures on the book margin. And later he became an engineer, so he must have learned drafting and all that. So he became quite good in in drawing. After he was released from Asenja, he said every uh, part of him wanted to forget. But he knew he had to remember. So he started doing all the sketches uh, about his experiences in Mazanja. Right then, uh, we decided to use animation uh, based on his own sketches wow. uh, to show his experience in Mazanja. Wow. So uh, in, in the live action part, he took us right beside him to go to the different places so we know his daily life in China as a human rights defender. In the animated part, it was also based on his own drawings. So hopefully the viewers um, get a, a very authentic look uh, in, uh, into his life. Wow, that's incredible. What an incredible story and incredible talent um, that he had. Um, one of the, the things, obviously what he experienced was really heartbreaking, um, but one of the things that really struck me and, and was really emotional for me too was just to see the effect that his experience and and then his subsequent um, advocacy for human rights and how it affected his family um, and how he and his wife had to get divorced um, and how he eventually, when he left China for his own safety, how and he went to Indonesia, um, just the effect that it had on his family. In your conversations with him, what... What did he share with you about his own feelings on the effect that his life had on his family, did, if, if anything? He was, he was torn apart. Mm. On one hand, he really felt that he should do something to make up to his wife. Uh, his wife has suffered so much over the years because of his work. On the other hand, uh, he also understood that this is this is a much bigger problem. Yeah. And um, uh, so he has to uh, 
make a decision whether he would, uh, you know, his wife and his, his, his ideals, his work. Yeah. So these are the things that really uh, kept him um, struggling. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. Um, I want to. There's one question I want to ask that is not related to Sun Yu specifically, but in the film you interviewed two former labor camp officers. Uh, what was that like, and how did you go about getting those interviews? Because um, I know that 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 obviously had to be extremely risky for both you and them. How did that all come about? One day, again, in the Skype meeting, Sun Yi told me, I have an idea. I want to go back to my Sanjia labor camp and interview the former guards. I said, what? <laughs> That's not a good idea. He said, well, this is not only for the film. More importantly, it is for them because they were the people who tortured him and he, he could sense that they were really remorseful for what they did. Mm. This might be their only chance to find redemption. I said, well, yes, but uh, no matter how uh, you felt about them, they could at any time turn around and make a phone call and report you. Right. This is just too risky. But he he insisted on going back to do that. And um, after the interviews, uh, one of the uh, former guards actually said, this was the first time in my life I was able to speak truth. Wow. Uh, they, they were so relieved. And um, um, that's why we, we got the permission to include them in the film. Uh, we only included a very small part of it. They, they talked a lot. Mm-hmm. But only from uh, that uh, little uh, interview one can tell uh, how impactful uh, Sun Yi was to them, wow. uh, what kind of impact they had, and how they felt about the whole thing, yeah. how this whole torture yeah. and everything that they had to do uh, changed them. Wow. Now, Sun Yi, as I referenced uh, briefly, Sun Yi, he eventually ended up in Indonesia for his own safety. Um, and that is where you were able to meet him in person for the first time. Um, ha, you know, and, and one of the things I thought was interesting was, so he went to Indonesia kind of, I guess, as a, a refugee, essentially, um, but he wasn't allowed to have a job. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, he was in the process of uh, waiting for his uh, appointment uh, to be recognized as an official UN refugee. Mm-hmm. And then it, uh, he also had, had to wait for years for resettlement to a third country. Yeah. Uh, so before he was recognized as a refugee, he wasn't able to uh, work. Yeah. Um, now, uh, big spoiler question here for those that are listening. Um, I was completely shocked <laughs> at the end when it's revealed that Sun Yi died in Indonesia. Um, I remember, you know, watching this whole film and I just kept thinking, wow, oh my goodness, what a powerful story, how brave he was. And like looking forward to seeing his redemption story. And then when it pops up at the end that he died in Indonesia, 
I remember it just took, it literally took my breath away. I mean, I immediately started crying and couldn't believe it. It was reported that he died from kidney failure, I believe. But if, if I can be so bold as to ask the question, um, we know we know that's not true. <laughs> so how, or it can't be, I don't know. Um, can you tell us at all anything you know about his death and the events surrounding it? Yes. The, uh, here are the things we, we knew. One, that the official cause of death was acute kidney failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had no kidney problems before. Mm-hmm. Two, uh, prior to his death, there was uh, a Chinese man who we highly suspect was a Chinese agent mm. uh, uh, that, that contacted him. And basically... Uh, demanded him to stop the work on the film and uh, to keep quiet uh, one day after he um, left Indonesia. Oh. And soon he refused. Yeah. And uh, one day I was uh, editing the film. I received this message that soon he had been hospitalized and he was in critical condition. And when I tried to contact him, he no longer remembered who I was. Oh, wow. Uh, very soon after that, he died. Wow. The the family member went to Indonesia uh, to attend his funeral and also strongly uh, request, demanded a um, an autopsy to be done. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, their request wasn't being <laughs> uh, wasn't granted, wow. and the body was quickly cremated. Ugh. So. Uh, this is what we knew. Um, there are many probable causes, uh, but personally, the most likely one was that he was poisoned. Mm. Just the the symptoms surrounding um, his sudden illness, because you said that he was very healthy, um, and that when you had seen him, he was very healthy, strong, in good health. So just the symptoms surrounding his death are are that that are c- consistent with poisoning yes uh, the, the whole thing the whole thing was very suspicious uh, but of course um there was no because no autopsy was done so there was no hard proof yeah uh, but um i was doing uh you know q and a and screenings all over the world in the canadian parliament in the european parliament Imagine after the uh, screening of the film, it was Sun Yi standing there telling people his uh, his story. It would be much, much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, there is certainly reason to silence him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, I mean, I'm just gathering from just our conversation and what I know about you and the documentaries that you've made that, at this point, just about any scenario is probable in your mind um, that the, the the government is able to do just about anything. Um, is that kind of your feeling? They are certainly capable of doing these things. Yeah. And um, in this particular case, uh, again, because there was no autopsy, yeah. one can never know for sure. Yeah. But in my mind... Um, there is little doubt yeah. that uh, uh, so he doesn't uh, so he didn't die from from natural causes. Yeah, 
How did his death affect you? Because I know that you really developed, I mean, you only met him in person once, but you obviously Skyped regularly and he became a friend to you. How did his death affect you? It was, it was devastating. Um, uh, Oh, Mm. (laughs) because I was uh, not, not only I was in contact with him for so long, uh, I was staring at him in in, in the editing suite every day. And whenever I needed uh, more, some details to be clarified, I would simply shoot him a message. For example, I wanted to know, what the stool looked like when he was making these decorations in Masanjali Emperor Camp, or what they, what, what they were eating, you know, and all these details, and he would, he would send me a reference picture or describe to me. So even after uh, his death, on one day, I was trying to find out an, uh, a particular detail. Automatically, I took out my phone. I was going to send him a message. And... Very soon, I realized, no, I, I you know, I, I probably shouldn't send the message anymore. So it was, it was very hard for me. Yeah. I also kept asking myself, was this the right thing to do? What if we didn't do the film? Yeah. Um, you know, is, 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 is this all worth it? Um, and all that. Uh, at, at the time, actually, we were working very hard to secure him a visa to Canada and wow. the uh, the the U.S. Yeah. But uh, these things took time, and obviously it was too late. Yeah. So for a long time, it was uh, it was very hard to uh, to even process all this information because that was not how I planned to end the film. Yeah. Um, if you re- remember, the, 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 there was a shot of Sun Yi and Julie walking in this uh, big park yeah. with, with a statue um, in, in the in the end. That statue is, is uh, I forgot the name of the statue, but it's a park in Jakarta. And that statue, I was told by the locals, uh, the statue represented uh, victory. Oh, wow. So in my mind, the two of them walking towards that statue and become smaller and smaller. That's how I intended to end the film. Yeah. Uh, so it's certainly not something we planned. Yeah. And um, I just... Uh, I just feel this huge obligation now to make sure we do everything we can um, so people know his story, uh, people are inspired by his story, and and take action. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm inspired by his story. I'm continuously inspired by his bravery. I'm inspired by your bravery and your uh, persistence in um, and your passion in telling these stories and being such an advocate for human rights. Um, it's just, it is incredibly inspiring. Um, have you had any contact with Sunyi's family uh, since his death? No. Yeah. No, for, for their safety. Yeah. Uh, I did not have any contact with anybody. Yeah. Now, after the release of the film, you know, and I know that you and I spoke about this a little earlier in the show where you just, you you spoke about the possible risks, risks that you were facing were nothing compared to what the the people in your films and what people like Sun Yi have faced. Um, you know, as you have made more of these films and as you continue to um, to just be a, an advocate for human rights and the issues of things that are going on in China, um, how do you feel? I mean, are you 
are you hopeful? Uh, are you discouraged? Like, what are what are your feelings? And um, you know, do you ever feel that you are that your safety is at risk or anything like that? If that's okay to ask. Uh, well, if if we look at the development in in uh, in China now, uh, it, <laughs> the situation is deteriorating. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Uh, now we've all perhaps read the report of um, the situation in Xinjiang, where probably one million to two million, or even more, the Uyghur, the Muslims, were detained in re-education camps. Uh, think about it: one million to two million people. Wow! This is just uh, unbelievable. And Xinjiang was where forced organ harvesting originated in China. Soon after the uh, opening of these labor camps, of uh, re-education camps, even right long before Western media started to cover uh, that, they also opened a green channel in Urumqi Airport. That's the, the biggest airport in Xinjiang. Uh, a green channel mean, meaning a fast track in the airport for organ uh, transplants. Uh, so basically, uh, the doctors carrying the organs can bypass the security line and just get on, uh, get to the plane faster. If you only ship one or two organs a day, you don't need a fast track, a green channel in the airport. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that something horrible is happening inside the camp. Once they have one to two many people kept there and no access to any journalists. So the and, and and yesterday I read about uh, in Sichuan where they started they arrested over a hundred uh, house church members and uh, uh, they started taking down uh, crosses and burn them. They banned all the previous translations of the Bible. Now you can only buy one version that's uh, translated by the government. I haven't read it, but I suppose the translation is somewhat different. Yeah. Um, you've also heard about the social credit score. Uh, and, you know, if, if you have done anything wrong in, in, the, in the eyes of the government, you can buy property, you can buy, you can buy train tickets, you can uh, go, go, buy flight tickets. Wow. So all that um, is certainly very concerning. Yeah. At the same time, uh, despite all that, I think in the long run, I am rather hopeful. Yeah. Because I've met so many Chinese people over the years, and I, if I compare their reaction 10 years ago to now, I can see a, a clear trend that more and more people are willing to learn what's going on. Yeah. Um, despite all the efforts of propaganda from the Chinese government. There's one particular movement I'd like to mention, it's, I think, one of the most underreported stories in China. Um, in 2004, a group of volunteers set up a website. Anybody who have joined the Communist Party, the Youth League, or the Pioneer Team, uh, which are all the affiliated organizations to the Communist Party in China, uh, can go to this website, use their real names or, or an alias, to... Uh, renounce their, their membership. So uh, at the beginning, I didn't quite think too much of it. But um, at this last time I checked, over 300 million people 
in China. Wow. I visited the website. Somebody write, uh, writes a long essay about why they want to quit. Somebody will simply put one or two sentences. But this movement, I think one day when history turns its page and looking back, uh, we would know this perhaps played a fundamental role in the change of China. Wow. So with this amount of number of people, uh, understanding what the party is and what they did to to the Chinese people. Uh, it means the propaganda is no longer, no longer working for these people. Mm-hmm. So when the right time comes with even a little spark, I think we may be able to see a much bigger movement that will transform China. Wow. Leon, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm just really encouraged and humbled uh, to hear that and Um, I mean, it's something that I now feel um, a responsibility as just a a, a fellow human (laughs) to learn more about um, and to educate myself on. Um, Is there is there anything that for people that are listening um, that just they feel that this is an issue or this is something that they want to learn more about, that they want to educate themselves on and they want to do something they want to be part of the change what would your advice or suggestion be well we actually had um on our website letter from com. there is a tab called take action and we would put different action items uh, on there periodically at the moment if you are a u.s citizen you can ask, you can write to your local senator asking them to support a Senate Resolution 220, which is a bipartisan resolution um, condemning the persecution against Falun Gong in China. Mm. If you were a Canadian citizen, uh, of course, uh, in a film we see the power of a letter, uh, and now you can write a letter to uh, the Canadian Prime Minister to bring a Canadian Falun Gong practitioner, Sun Qian, uh, back home. He, she is unrelated to Sun Yi, but she's a Falun Gong practitioner. Uh, despite being a Canadian citizen, she is illegally detained in China. So we want to bring her back. Mm. Uh, and of course, raising awareness, uh, the simple fact of sharing the film to your family and friends, just like what Julie Keith did, sharing the letter can lead to a huge impact. Absolutely. Um, and that is something that I, I am, I'm just prayerful through this podcast, um, through, uh, and through lots of other mediums and people sharing it, um, that more people will hear, um, what you're doing, um, with Flying Cloud Productions and all the documentaries that you'll be doing. Um, and that, uh, Sun Yi's story will, long, long, long outlive him. Um, and that, um, I'm just, I'm just prayerful that he, he will continue to have an impact and he will save lives through, um, the risk that he took as well, um, to tell his story. So, um, I just want to thank you for, uh, again, for, for all that you do, um, and for just continuing to, you know, really fight the good fight. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your help to get the message out. Oh, absolutely. It is the least the least I can do. Like I said, after viewing the film, I was um, 
I was so impacted by it. That that's why I was like, I, I have to have Leon on my show because I have to have this. I have to know more. So, um, well, Leon, now is the portion of the show. And obviously we've been uh, talking some very heavy stuff, um, which is important. Um, but I would like to just get to know you a little bit more. And we're just going to ask some fun kind of get to know you questions um, here as we wrap up. So the first question is, and I wanted to ask you this because um, you mentioned that you were really into films as a child, and um, that was part of the inspiration for becoming a filmmaker. What is your favorite movie? Uh, I got asked quite often, and uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that changed from time to time. Uh, <laughs> So I, I can't re- I can't really give one film, but uh, I, I can say this is I really believe that um, uh, films is so much more than self expression. Yeah. I really believe that um, films should be meaningful in the sense that it should open people's eyes and, and cause an impact, and and that's what I strive to do is to make sure that all the stories. Uh, carry a positive message, then it, it is a positive impact to society. Um, so that's what I would comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't know if you can share this, but are you already thinking about or working on your next film? Uh, last week, uh, we uh, wrapped uh, production on on a uh, animated film which is uh, about orphans in China. Wow. Uh, so hopefully we can get that film uh, completed sometime next year. I'm also um, in preparation for a narrative feature next year. Uh, this film is about uh, a group of young students from the Chinese equivalent to the uh, MIT mm. risk their lives to help uh, a Western reporter uh, to interview uh, victims of the persecution in China. It was based on a true story. Uh, the reporter uh, ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, wow. And uh, the three students were all sentenced to more than 10 years in prison. Wow. They all survived prison and are now living in the U.S. That's how I got to interview them and got to know their story. It was, uh, it was uh, a very, very uh, compelling story. It was almost like uh, Spotlight plus uh, Argo. Yeah. Oh, well, those are both <laughs> so, amazing films. Right. So hopefully we, we can tell their story uh, as well. Uh, so, so we do have uh, some, several projects in different stages. But as you can see, uh, it's still um, on similar subject matters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I look forward to hearing more about those. Um Okay, so my next question is, if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life, what would it be? Well, it would certainly be Chinese food. <laughs> I can tell you that. What would be your favorite dish? <laughs> my, uh, I, I, I really like uh, hot pot. Ooh, I don't know what that is. Hot pot where uh, people surround a table when you have something in the center boiling uh, water with all kinds of different uh, uh, flavors, uh, different soup, and you can uh, put in seafood oh, or is it uh, like all fond- kinds of meat. like fondue? Sort of, yes. Yeah. yes. 
Okay. All right. I like that. That's good. <laughs> now I'm hungry. <laughs> um, okay. What is a dream that you have yet to achieve? Oh, frankly speaking, I hope uh, uh, one day that I don't I don't feel this burden to uh, to keep making films mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. I can. Uh, I can do a romant- romantic comedy or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see you produce a romantic comedy or like uh, here in the U.S., uh, you know, Hallmark Christmas movies are really popular. So <laughs> maybe, yes. maybe a Hallmark Christmas movie, something like that. <laughs> yes. One day, uh, a writer who's been working with me, because I've been traveling uh, all these places to promote the film, the festivals, and uh, uh, she was saying something like, uh, she remembered a quote that if uh, that in her mind that heaven is look like a library you can read all, all the books you want, and I re- responded something like in my mind heaven uh, has a, a big bed you can just lie on it and just don't have to wake up. And then she commented something. She said, "Well, uh, it, it's more important that after you wake up you don't have to get up." You can just do it. <laughs> that would be the biggest luxury. Uh, and I felt, well, maybe one day, that's my biggest dream, actually. Just stay. No burden at all. Yes. You know, no responsibility. I can just really relax and do whatever I want. <laughs> I think that's a good dream. That is definitely a good dream. And you deserve it very much so. Uh, all right. My last question is what are you most grateful for today? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to, to be in Canada. To have the freedom to do this important work, uh, and more importantly, I'm grateful to all these people who trusted me with their stories and with their lives, so that I have the honor to to tell their story and to do this very meaningful, meaningful work. So, so despite all these challenges, I, I do feel I'm very lucky, very fortunate. Mm. To uh, to even have you know something to do with with this great cause. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Leon, thank you again so much uh, for everything. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for telling the story of Sunyi and so many other um, just amazing, brave men and women um, who have been through the unimaginable. Um, and just thank you for your time. This has been an absolute honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Molly. My conversation with Leon changed me. It has challenged me to continue to educate myself and find ways to genuinely make an impact in this area and be an advocate for change when it comes to human rights violations that people experience. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources and to view Leon's documentaries and find out ways you can support his efforts. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs who are literally changing the world with what they do for a living. And if you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Thanks for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you're subscribed. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. And while you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review of the show? Leaving a review of the show helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. And if you share the show on social media, be sure to use the hashtag business with purpose podcast or tag me at still being Molly on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This show is edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman. And the music is by Mark Killian of third wheel media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose. 